It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. To Truth and Justice. I am coming to you live this week, all the way down from snowy West Memphis, Arkansas, all by my onesie because Mike wouldn't come with me this time. Hey, I had plenty of work to do in the studio. We both know that. <laughs> right. And uh, as you just heard, Mike is coming from you live from snowy Michigan in the studio. Yeah, and we're used to snow around here, but I heard you're getting some snow in Arkansas too. Yeah, it's uh, pretty crazy. It kind of messed up some things that I needed to do down here. Monday night, we got about one inch of snow down here, and the, the entire town has been shut down for two days ever since then. One inch of snow? Really? That's nothing in Michigan. Yeah, it, that's what I keep telling everybody, that you know I left two feet of snow to come down here. But they're not prepared for it down here. But yeah, it's a little crazy because you know yesterday the courthouses were closed. Today, too, even though know, it's been two days since it snowed, the courthouses are closed, the schools are all closed. You know, people aren't getting into work because of all the, snow, all the one inch of snow they have here. So, yeah, it's a different world down here than it is up in Michigan. So you think you're going to be able to get everything done that you planned on doing on this trip or what? Uh, yeah, I got the important stuff done. There was a particular witness that I needed to interview and uh, I was able to make contact with that person. So, you know, that was at least the, the trip has not been a, a total bust. There were some things that I wanted to get done that I wasn't able to. But uh, though I'm sure there'll be another trip where I make you come down with me. Hey, I'm looking forward to it, boss. But for now, we've got a bunch of questions to get to. All right, let's hear them. So let's start with this voicemail from Brooke from Wisconsin. Hi, Bob and Mike. This is Brooke from Wisconsin. I'm calling uh, with a question. Um, In the last few episodes particularly, we've been talking about uh, how the West Memphis PD hasn't appropriately investigated the case. And, you know, you've mentioned their incompetence. They didn't follow through on the leads or really do much as far as verifying witness statements or anything. What kind of consequences would they be facing? I mean, aside from just having their reputation tarnished, if they admitted, um, you know, we didn't fully investigate or we made mistakes, you know, evidence was lost, things weren't tested, uh, would they be looking at civil complaints, maybe monetary judgments? Would there be a way of, of past cases needing to be reinvestigated if uh, they did admit that they didn't follow through on this case? I'm just curious because it seems like they would, should be interested in 
correcting the past wrongs, but of course, if that's going to cause a load of trouble, that might be their motivation. Um, not really a legal scholar. I don't know how much you guys are, but that would be something I'm curious about. Thanks for the episodes. Appreciate it. Okay, so there's there's a couple things here. Number one, and we'll get into this later, but the West Memphis Police Department was actually already being investigated for misconduct at the time that this murder occurred. And there's been some speculation that maybe that's why they turned down the state police for help, because it was actually the state police that were investigating them. There was something to do with drug evidence uh, going missing from the evidence room. I think there were accusations that maybe some of the some of the officers had stolen evidence from the evidence room and were selling it on the street. So there's that. Um, as far as consequences, who knows? I mean, the, really, the DOJ, uh, the Department of Justice, could come in and investigate them for misconduct, but that just doesn't. You know, we we've had other cases where we wanted that to happen, and as it turns out, it's not as easy to make happen as you think. You know, they're not going to come down for some little isolated incident or even, you know, and I wouldn't say this is isolated, but basically it's got to be a large, usually result in some kind of civil unrest, usually with a racial connotation to it. Um, so I think it's unlikely that anything would happen to them. That being said, I don't think that you're ever going to hear anybody from the West Memphis Police Department say, man, we really screwed this up. We botched it because, you know, that that causes all kinds of problems. You know, if they were to admit that, then the three that were convicted and then later were released on their Albert plea, they could use that as evidence that there was misconduct and it could lead to a lawsuit or even exoneration for them. So I, I think that you're never, ever going to get a comment out of anybody uh, with any amount of authority from West Memphis, uh, either for the police department or the prosecutor's office, admitting any fault, because by doing that, they're just opening themselves up to a whole slew of problems. All right, and listener Melissa wanted to know, did the police ever question Dawn? Uh, yes, the police did question Dawn. She gave a couple of statements. They're, they're pretty vague. They were mostly, uh, the interest in those questions was about the three boys that she saw that offered a shot. I mean, there, there's not, you don't see any interview notes with her where they're like trying to walk through a timeline and who was where, when. The focus was all seemed to be on the boys that she saw coming out of the woods that offered her a shot. Okay, and we had another listener question. Unfortunately, this was in a voicemail where the caller didn't leave their name, but we'll try to answer the question anyway. She was curious because in another episode, she thought you said that the boys may have been killed between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., but previously you mentioned that the boys were thrown into the water before dark because they didn't have any mosquito bites on them. Can we clarify the boys' likely time of death here, Bob? My personal opinion is that they were killed somewhere probably between 6.30 and 7.30. Probably, I think, more on the earlier end, probably closer to seven. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And we're gonna actually going to, this week's episode on Sunday, we're actually going to get into some of that. Uh, the 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. was what Dr. Frank Peretti, who performed the autopsy, said on the witness stand in one of the trials. Uh, and that being said, he didn't say that was the time of death. He was asked if they could determine time of death. And he, he went on and saying it's not an exact science. It's not like it is on TV. Uh, you know, there's a lot of factors we have to figure into. We can look at lividity, we can look at rigor mortis, but, you know, water and environmental factors affect both of those things. And then we look at, you know, what, you know, known time when they were seen last, things like that, to try to determine time of death. Uh, but there's there's no exact science to it. And he said the same thing. There was two different trials here in the first trial. In the second trial, they kept pressing and pressing and pressing him to give an actual estimated time of death. And he then says if he had to make an estimate, he would say between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. with the caveat that, you know, there's a ton of different factors that could go into that. And so 
that's the only time of death that we have on the record is Peretti's estimate in the second trial. Personally, I don't think it's accurate for a number of reasons. Uh, and, and one of those reasons being he wasn't prepared to answer that question. He never, in any of his notes or reports or anything, he never actually put in a, in, an estimated time of death. When he was pressed, he was, he was literally thinking off the top of his head, trying to figure out, you know, as you, as you put factors together, what time he thinks it may have been. And he says 1 to 5 a.m. But again, we're going to get into that more on Sunday. And when we do, um, you know, I, I, I guess I'll, give, I'll be giving the support that I believe there is for a much earlier time of death in that episode. Uh, but that's, again, just my opinion. Okay, and Michelle writes to us, I think Dana Moore lied about being home because she felt guilty. Not because she did anything, but because she wasn't home. Like she probably should have been. Is this possible, Bob? Yeah, I mean, anything's possible. You know, and I want to point out, too, that Dawn agreed to do the interview. And we put it out. We don't edit interviews. So we we aired it. But we don't. I, I can't say with 100% assurity that Dana Moore wasn't home. You know, that is, that is Dawn's version of events. I, I will tell you personally, I believe her. But, you know, we don't know that for sure. But as far as the motivation for doing so, that's all I can think of, really, is that she just didn't want police to know that she had her 10-year-old taking care of her 8-year-old uh, on the day that her 8-year-old was killed. Okay, and along those lines of believing Dawn, Kevin writes to us, is there any worry about Dawn Moore's interview being too biased against her parents? And then he asks also, if West Memphis is a rough area, it seems like there's lots of alcoholism and drug addiction there. Uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely some concern about bias, and that's why at the end of the episode, I went through some of the evidence to support what Dawn had said. And it's nothing uh, against Dawn's credibility at all. It's just that I can't take anyone's word for something without at least trying to verify it. You know, I could put it out there, but with the caveat that, you know, it's, it's unproven. In Dawn's case, you know, the major issue here is the fact that she says that Dana wasn't home. And that's why we went back to the evidence to see what there was. And again, we have a couple of interviews where Pam Hobbs says that Michael said that his mom wasn't home. So that's that's pretty good support of what they said. But again, Pam said those things years later. So who knows if that's accurate? You know, I, I tend to believe that uh, it's just, you know, her her stories have changed a lot over the years, as anyone's would, uh, just based on long term and memories changing over time. But then what I also noticed is I went through all of the other statements, everyone that was around. And what I realized was the only person saying that Dana Moore was home after school is Dana Moore. You know, we always say that absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. So with, again, that caveat in there. But, you know, John Mark Byers doesn't say anything about seeing her. Ryan Clark doesn't say anything about seeing her. Nobody talks about, you know, right in that those after school hours having any contact with Dana Moore. And then Dawn saying that's because she wasn't home. And then we have Pam saying on two different occasions that Michael said his mom wasn't home. But yeah, we, I definitely have to con have considered, and everyone should consider, the possible bias factor because she does have uh, a strained relationship with her parents. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And then what about West Memphis being kind of a rough area? It seems to me at that time that that neighborhood, you know, we've always said that was kind of a lower middle class neighborhood, simple neighborhood. These are all, you know, most, not all, but mostly small ranch houses, little, you know, two, three bedroom ranch houses. It does seem that maybe it's just the the three families involved, but it's it's a little odd that we have all three families involved and all three of them seem to have issues with drugs and alcohol abuse. It was, you know, if you look at the police logs, it gives you a little insight. You know, it's not a big town of 25, 30,000 people in the town. And when you, when you look at the police logs that we put up several episodes ago, you see the kind of, they're, they're constantly running out on calls. There's, there's, that gives you an idea of what the crime was like in that area. You know, a, a murder like this, no one had ever seen before. And that, and that goes for most of the country. But yeah, I think that it was, it was a rough area. Remember that you've got two major interstates that intersect here in West Memphis. And so you have a lot of transient population here. Um, I know that there's, you know, there are definitely a lot of drug trafficking issues here. There's a lot of uh, prostitution. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that I guess for me, I would consider it to be a kind of a rough town. But at the same time, you know, Mike, you've been here with me. It's, you know, I've never, I've never felt unsafe here or anything like that. Right. You know, it's not like when we were you know, working in South Dallas, that was a very, that there we actually felt unsafe, you know, canvassing those neighborhoods, talking to people. All right, Ben writes to us, in the interview with Dawn, Bob asks about both physical and sexual abuse in the Moore home. Bob, do you believe that the three murders were sexually motivated, even though the forensics could not conclusively confirm that any had taken place? No, I don't, I don't think there was, there was any sexual assault involved in these crimes at all, none whatsoever. That's my opinion. Okay, and Joe has a quick question. He says, I was watching Paradise Lost last night, and they show Michael Moore's mother's name as Diane. In the show, however, you refer to her as Dana. What am I missing here? Uh, you know, well, what you're missing is the fact that her name is actually Diane, and she goes by Dana. <laughs> All right, that explains that. Let's move on. Jenny says, how far-fetched is it to believe that the parents were involved in the murders? Maybe alone or maybe teamed up. I don't know the parents' relationships with one another, but it sounds like all the boys had some rough encounters with their stepfathers and fathers at some point. Do you think they could be covering up for one another, and that's why they are so insistent that the three other guys did this? Well, to begin with, you got to know that not all of them are insistent the other three did it. You know, John Mark Byers has very publicly stated that he believes the West Memphis Three are innocent. Uh, but as, as far as family members being involved, I do not know. And at this point, um, you know, there's a lot of people that have kind of worked ahead and watched the documentaries. There's there's some speculation in different directions. I'm not ready to go there yet. I don't think that we have enough evidence. I, like I said, I think that a good course of the investigation for any case like this is to look to the people closest, the people with access to the boys. You would look at, you know, the parents and and kind of work out in concentric circles from there. Um, but as far as do I think that any of them could have been involved, I'm not even close to being able to make a judgment call on that at this point. Okay. And Joy has two questions for us. First, Don says that Michael was with Stevie when he asked to go into Robin Hood, but no mention of Christopher. Does this do anything to discredit the sightings of the four boys going in together? 
Okay, well, first of all, no, I don't think it does anything to discredit it. Because that is, you know, if you go back to, what was it, five, whenever I did the, the hypothetical timeline, you know, when we analyzed all the sightings, that was, to me, the only way to kind of fit all the sightings in and make them all credible was that Michael and Stevie went into the woods alone, you know, around six. And then they came back out of the woods, and that's when they saw Chris Byers on 14th Street. Then they hooked up with Chris Byers, possibly the fourth boy, and then they went back into the woods. Um, so that, that's what I think happened anyway. So, no, I don't think it discredits the other sightings. And remember, the sightings of Ben Crafton and Kim Williams and now Dawn Moore, who didn't give you said she thinks it was earlier, but she couldn't give a time. But at the time of the murders, you know, the next day when Kim Williams and Ben Crafton are interviewed, they both said it was around between 530 and 6 that they saw just Stevie and Michael going into the woods. All of the site, you know, and then we have uh, Dawn Moore, who says that she saw Chris on the back of Stevie's bike and the three of them heading towards Robin Hood. Um, that was sometime after six when she was out taking her dog for a walk, uh, which I'm sure we're, we'll get into the credibility of that. If not, remind me, Mike, to come back to it. Will do. Six o'clock, the boys are in the woods. Shortly after six, they're back out. They hook up with Chris. They go up and then all the sightings that show all three of them together. Uh, either just the three of them or with four, uh, a fourth boy all happen around 630, you know, so you're talking 20, 30 minutes later. And her second question is, are we able to get time cards or payroll to verify that Dana and Todd Moore were both working that day? For the sake of tax purposes, I would think their employers might still have them on file. Well, it's been 25 years, so I doubt it. You know, there, there's record retention laws as far as how long employers have to keep that stuff, and it's not 25 years. But even if they did still have them, you know, we don't have any authority and we ran into this in our season one case where you know there was there was an issue with time cards and things like that but we don't have the authority to force the employers to turn those over they have no obligation to do so and there's even some privacy issues with them doing it which is one of the frustrations you know i, I keep voicing how frustrated i am with the west memphis police department's investigation uh, and this is another one like that is just not because they're suspects and not because i think that they had anything to do with it but as a standard procedure, the first thing they should have done is gone to all the parents, thoroughly interviewed all of them, you know, in, in an official capacity, and then they should have verified all of their whereabouts. So, the, and, and what you're trying to do is is check off boxes and rule people out. It's just standard procedure. So every parent should have been interviewed. Every parent should have been fingerprinted. Every parent should have been asked to submit DNA samples. Uh, and then every parent, you know, wherever they said they were, they should have checked into it. You know, for example, Todd Moore, I was driving truck. I was in Louisiana. Okay. Then they go and, and pull those records to verify it, just as standard procedure. So it should have been done back then. It wasn't. And no, we cannot do it now. Okay. And Jeremy writes to us during the interview, Don references going to find Austin. Was this a nickname for Michael that we didn't know about before? If not, who is Austin? Dawn just misspoke there. Austin is actually her son's name. Uh, so she, she met Michael and just a slip of the tongue said Austin. Gotcha. Okay, Glenna writes, Dawn said she gave her permission to Michael to go play in the woods as long as he didn't tell on her. But a few hours later, she tells Dana Michael went into the woods. I think this was after they went to eat at Crystal's. So why the change of heart so soon? If Michael had been late before and it wasn't unusual and they both get whipped, why tell so soon? Well, first of all, it wasn't after Crystal's. She she said that it happened shortly after. So Michael comes to her, says, can we play in Robin Hood? They tell her they really want to go in there. She finally says, yes, they can go in. 
And then if you listen, what she's saying is after they go in, she said they weren't allowed in there, but she didn't know why. So she said, forget it, fine, that's fine. Go ahead and go in there. And then her friend Kim tells her there's people back there doing drugs and drinking alcohol. There's all kinds of, you know, there's bad people that go back in those woods. And then now Dawn is concerned for Michael. And so that's why the, why the change of heart. It was, you know, when it was just you're playing somewhere that mom doesn't want you to play, don't tell. And then she finds out the reason that they don't want him to play there is because uh, it's dangerous back there. Then it's like, OK, I better tell. Uh, but that, I think, was, you know, with Dawn not remembering the time, but fitting it in with Kim Williams and Ben Crafton and Dana's own statements later. I think that it was probably right around six. And then she said, OK, I need to go home and tell mom where where Michael's at. But that was, I think, I think that was around six. 6.30, not after she went to Crystal's. Listener Chris writes to us, all three of the West Memphis kids were in the same scout troop. I never knew they were all three in the scouts, let alone in the same troop. Seems like a pertinent fact that should be a bigger deal. These kids came from abusive homes, and it's no secret that the scout leaders have been busted for abusing trusting kids, and their leader just might know about a clubhouse the kids had been in the woods. Do we know anything about their troop leader, like where he lived or what car he might have drove? Yeah, well, we're going to get a little more into that in a later episode. But yeah, so the, the troop leaders were Todd Moore, Michael's dad. And geez, I'm, I'm pulling the blank right now. I don't have my files around me. I want to say Edward Lucas is, is ringing a bell, but don't don't quote me on that. I'll, have to, I'll get back into that later and look that up. Uh, but those were the two scout leaders. Of course, Todd Moore wasn't spoken to much. Um, the other scout leader, I believe, I know for a fact, was actually interviewed at a later time. Okay, I just had Mike pause that for a minute so I could pull up uh, that report. It, it is Edward Lynn Lucas was the other scout leader, uh, and he was interviewed about his whereabouts and about his alibi. Okay, and like you said, we're going to get into the scout leader in a further episode? Yeah, well, I guess I can address a little bit here because I'm sure you have questions about it. I just didn't want to uh, step on any questions that you might have. But regarding Todd Moore's whereabouts, so the issue we have is – when Edward Lynn Lucas was interviewed, he told police that on the day the boys were killed on May 5th, that he actually went to the Moore's house and spoke with Todd Moore at 3.15 p.m. And there's been some discussion about the fact that there was a meeting that night that was canceled. That's not what the question was about. What they were discussing was canceling the meetings for the summertime, which is a common thing with just about any activity. In summertime, people get busy um, until they might you know, put things on pause. Uh, but the interesting part is the fact that, you know, Todd Moore is supposed to be out driving a truck somewhere in, in Louisiana. Uh, but this guy says at 315, which would be right when Michael and Dawn were at home before they left. Uh, Lucas says that he's standing there talking to him. Uh, and he also says that he saw Pam and Stevie walk by at that point. I haven't dug into it too deeply yet. Uh, I think there's some problems with that. I, I, to be honest with you, I think likely probably has the wrong day. Because nobody, you know, he doesn't remember seeing Dawn and Michael there. He, you know, they don't remember seeing him there. But, but that's just an interesting note about Edward Lucas is that he says that on that day that he was there uh, and talking to Todd Moore at about 3.15. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. And listener KJ writes to us, Is there anyone from the time period that can attest to what kinds of things happened in the woods? Drugs, alcohol, sex. There has to be someone that will speak up about their childhood in this neighborhood. There's nobody that I've come across yet that it's kind of like the satanic panic stuff, right? So like everybody has all these rumors that there's these satanic ritual killings happening and everybody has to watch out for them, even though when you actually look at statistics from the FBI, that there's literally none. I think John Douglas at one point says there's literally zero satanic ritual killings uh, in the country over like a 10 year period during this satanic panic period of time. There's a lot of conjecture. So everybody I talk to, not everybody, but a lot of people I talk to say, oh, yeah, the, you know, people would go back there and smoke pot and drink alcohol and, and do drugs. But I haven't talked to anybody that says that, yeah, I used to go back there and do that yet. I'm sure they're out there. If you're one of those people listening right now, please write us and let us know. Um, but I also don't think that that's necessarily like something crazy out of the ordinary. I mean, think back to all of you listening to your childhood. We all had things we did we weren't supposed to do, and and we all had little places where we could sneak away to do it. So you know, you know, if a couple of uh, teenagers snuck back into the woods where there were no parents around, so they could smoke some cigarettes, you know, it's I don't think there's it, that's all that nefarious. But the whole idea of all this bad stuff happening back in Robin Hood seems to be a lot of rumor, but it's probably true. I mean, most rumors are based in in reality, but I don't know how actually dangerous it was. All right, and this question's from Lori. Has Terry Hobbs ever said why he let Pam finish her shift the night the boys went missing? Not that I'm aware of. He's basically said that he spent that whole time looking for Stevie. uh, And I guess we could assume that he thought that he was going to find him. Of of course, you have to understand, none of these parents uh, knew what was going to happen. As far as they knew, the kids just were out screwing around somewhere and hadn't come home. And in their mind, I'm sure the kids were in trouble. There's probably, I'm sure there's some worry there that, you know, oh my God, something happened to him. We all, all as parents have that concern. But for the most part, I'm sure they thought, you know, I'm going to find him at a friend's house and he's going to be in trouble because he didn't come home when he was supposed to. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to put, you know, thoughts into somebody's head and and I can't possibly do that. Um, But in in just an assumption and speculating, again, if we're assuming all best intentions on everyone's part, that. You know, he's just thinking any minute now I'm going to find him. And the last thing he's thinking about is let me go worry Pam at work. I'm doing the same thing she would be doing just because Pam couldn't drive. Uh, so she would just be sitting in the truck with him while they're driving around looking. So I don't know. Maybe that's it. Okay. And Patty says, if the Moors didn't want to really have much or anything to do with the buyers, then why did Todd go out with John Mark that time to shoot up some pumpkins? And she's talking about Paradise Lost here. Well, you have to understand how films like that are made. And that's not just this one, any documentary. And like, we've had a little bit of experience with this on a, on a couple of occasions where we've done shoots for, for certain projects. 
Um, but a, a lot of what you see in the documentary is staged. You know, the, the producers will, for example, you might meet somebody for the first time. And then if somebody's filming it, they'll say, okay, like we need to go do that again. Cause we want to, we want to get some good camera angles of you meeting this person. And so that being said, I, th all the, I think all that pumpkin shooting scene was, was the filmmakers saying, you know, this would be a cool scene if we show you guys, you know, shooting guns at pumpkins, you know, it'll be, it'll be an interesting scene in the movie. Now, according to John McBriars, what he told me, that's exactly what happened that the, the film crew put that together, thought it'd be a cool scene that originally it was supposed to be all three parents going to do it. And then Terry Hobbs backed out at the last minute and didn't do it. So it ended up just being Todd and John Mark Byers. Okay. And Lisa says, so you don't think the murder was planned, but you don't think it was a stranger who did it. So do you then believe this was a crime of passion? Uh, a crime of passion is, I guess, is a way to put it. I, I would, and again, this in, I think, two episodes from now, we're going to get into this, but in my opinion, it would be what's, what's referred to as a personal cause homicide, which means somebody with a known relationship to the victims had a problem with, you know, at least one of them. Uh, and, and that may not be, don't mean like premeditated, but because of that personal relationship, there was some anger and there was a reason to lash out. But as you said, yeah, no, I, I don't think that it was a stranger. I, I believe, uh, and I'm not saying that this is just my opinion, you know, that, but it, it seems really unlikely to me that uh, not only a homicidal maniac, but someone uh, like the worst of the worst type of homicidal maniac that would kill three innocent eight-year-old boys just happened to be sitting in those woods when three eight-year-old boys wandered into it, uh, you know, or a group of people or, or whatever. That's, that's just, it's, that's possible, I, but I just find it unlikely. I think it's much more likely that someone was in those woods with the purpose of going after those boys. And, and that, in my opinion, that means that uh, it's someone that was, that was looking for them. So, or, or, and that could be, I know I sound like I'm dancing around here a little bit, and that's only because I am. <laughs> but, <laughs> That could be, and that's why we were we were assessing the timeline because it could have been anyone they met along the way. For as an example, and I'm not saying this is a theory, but as an example, uh, you know, we have the report of you know Michael Moore calling the black kids names. It says the other was calling two black kids names. That interaction could have pissed them off, and they got together and said, "Well, let's go teach those boys a lesson." And they they're looking for them. They find them, following them in there. And then cause them harm. So that's what I mean when I say that somebody followed them in. There, there, there's somebody with some interaction along the way that day. I believe there was there was some interaction with someone that caused this to happen. Not not victim blaming, saying that the boys caused it to happen, but uh, just when we're looking at, at criminal behavior analysis, you know, every you know a particular victim was chosen for a particular reason at a particular time in a particular place, uh, and that kind of reflects back to the offender. I think that something happened during that, the course of that day that led to someone following them into those woods and killing them. I don't think it's very likely, in my humble opinion, that there was people or, per, or a person in those woods lying in wait for some boys to come randomly into the woods for them, you know, for their prey to just wander into their trap. I don't, I don't personally think that's likely. All right. James has two questions. Since they took fingerprints from the scene and checked back then with no matches, have they ran the prints since 1993? I assume he's talking about the, the print in the mud. Yeah, the palm print. Yeah, well, we don't know if it's a palm, palm print. I think that's what it was the general consensus, but 
uh, Tony Anderson, who took the print, said, you know, it could have been a number of things, uh, partial palm print or a partial thumbprint. He's not sure. And so I don't think that it's ever been run through APHIS. I've never seen any indication that that's happened, which is a national database of everyone that's ever been fingerprinted to compare it to. But APHIS didn't exist in 1993, so it couldn't have been done. They could only compare it to other people. I don't know or I don't think that that's ever been done. But at the same time, he also said that, I think he said there was only, there were seven or eight points of comparison on there, which is enough to rule somebody out. But I think they need at least 10 or 15 off the top of my head to actually get a conclusive match. So I don't know if it would do them any good anyway. And then also when you factor in the fact that it could be a palm print and not a thumbprint, that would change things too, because there's not a lot of palm prints in the database. Okay. And also he wants to know if you've tried to reach out to Ryan Clark or Britt Smith. Um, actually, I have made an attempt to reach out to Ryan Clark this week while I've been down here. I actually went to his house yesterday uh, and no one was home. So I left a note. So yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. But no, I have not made contact with them. Stephen writes, probably a tough question to answer. But do you think that those who committed this crime are following your weekly podcast on the case? If so, what would be your message to them? Uh, that is a tough question to answer. Um, uh, let me think. Yeah, I mean. If I'm going to be 100 percent honest, yes, I believe the person or persons that committed this crime are listening or at least following along on social media. I think they're very well aware of what we're doing here. If I had a message to them, I don't know. I mean, I could I could I could give some big grandiose "We're coming for you" message, but the, but really, if I if I truly had the person sitting in front of me was able to talk to them, it would be just put an end to this. Just put an end to it. Just come, come clean, look at the number of lives that have been destroyed by this. And we haven't even begun to get into the amount of lives that have been destroyed because of this case. At some, at some point, it just has to end. And, I, and, and, if, and if you're not willing to do that, then I don't know how you can possibly live with yourself after watching the devastation that came from what you did. Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And thank you to Katie Ross at CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindor, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And thank you to all of you for all of your engagement support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod, or send us a voicemail anytime, day or night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.
Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.